Welcome to another episode of the Neoliberal Round Podcast. We have breaking news. John Anthony Castro, John Anthony Castro, in a audio, in an audio message to us just moments ago, says that he will be in Washington, D.C. on July 25th to file a federal lawsuit in federal court against the Federal Commission to declare Trump an ineligible candidate and to have him regulated as such and to also bring into question Donald Trump's constitutional eligibility under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to even be on the ballot or be a candidate. Again, breaking news coming in that John Anthony Castro, the U.S. 2024 presidential candidate, will be in Washington, Washington, D.C. on July 25th to file a federal lawsuit in federal court against the federal, co- the federal commission to declare Trump a candidate, an ineligible candidate, and to have him regulated as such, and to bring into question Donald Trump's constitutional eligibility under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to even be on the ballot or be a candidate. Mr. Castro said also that he will be in D.C. because he filed a federal election. He filed a federal election commission complaint against former President Donald Trump and that he is a registered Republican candidate. And July 23rd marks the 100 will mark the 120th day since he filed the complaint against former president Mr. Donald J Trump which was about 4 months ago which actually greenlights him to be able to file this federal lawsuit in federal court against the federal commission to declare Trump an ineligible candidate and to have him regulated as such and of course if you had listened to our pre- a previous podcast where we had interviewed Mr. Castro for about two hours, where he talks about his platform and he talks about this particular issue, and he also had revealed to us some breaking news as it relates to the January 6th hearing, indicating to us that Don- Mr. Trump 
that popular January 6th, six, the, the uprising was called an American experiment. It wasn't a, an experiment. It, it was orchestrated. It was two days in the making. And there were strategic moves. And he had alluded to that. And some of you might be hearing some of that coming out now. But you, if you follow the podcast and follow my website, thenearlybull.com and renaldocmckenzie.com, follow my news feeds and blogs and so on, you probably might have been party or privy to early news. And if you're just following, I apologize, but welcome to the Neoliberal Round podcast. Now, we will actually, I have the audio, the audio of Mr. 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 Castro speaking to us and moments ago, and I will actually play that for you. But um, we will be, we will, we will be sharing. We will, we will be, we will be, we will be at the press release because what he plans to do to do is he will file this and then have a press conference right away. And we are hope, and we will be covering it, and we are also going to be sharing the details of this with other news media sometime in the week. Mr. Castro will make the uh, the the in the details of this. Of, of this filing and the press conference available and we will also share it with the public and we will also share it with other um, podcasts and, and, and uh, media houses because this is major. This is major and this is very important. This is very important. But here is Mr. Castro moments ago. It's John. Hey, so I wanted to give you a heads up. On July 25th, um, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C., because I filed a uh, FEC complaint, Federal Election Commission complaint against uh, Donald Trump. And I'm a registered uh, Republican presidential candidate. And uh, July 23rd marks the 120th day since I filed the complaint pretty much four months ago. That actually greenlights me to be able to file a federal lawsuit in uh, federal court against the Federal Election Commission to declare Trump a candidate to have him regulated as uh, such. And then that way I can also bring into question his constitutional eligibility under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to even be on the ballot or be a candidate. I'm going to be putting together a press release um, this coming week, and uh, and I wanted to give it to you and see... Welcome back. That was Mr. 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 John Anthony Castro some um, earlier today. And um, right now, just before we get into the Roe versus Wade conversations, which is the topic for today, um, I just wanted to know that I will be presenting at this year's AGLSP conference. AGLSP conference this year. And um, the AGLSP is the Association of Association of Graduates in Liberal Studies Program. It's the Association of Graduate Liberal Studies Program. And they're having a conference, and it's a yearly conference. And this will be on October 10 to October 12, 2022, in San Antonio, Texas. And I will give you some more details um, as it relates to this. But I'm going to be presenting on neoliberalism, globalization, income inequality, poverty and resistance, which of course is the title of my book that came out about a year ago. And I have a follow-up to that book and another book working on. One that looks at privilege, power, position, status, and secrets to unlocking divine intervention. But the one that is upcoming 
is the second edition to neoliberalism but it is con but the, it has a new title it's neoliberalism considered but i will be in san antonio texas this year october 10 to 12 and i will be presenting so i'm looking forward i think it's open to the public it's open to the public to scholars students and professionals and um and there's one other news that um, one other event that i must bring to your attention um i believe well my cousin is dominating the junior 400 meter hurdles event and she will be at the junior olympics in north carolina this year at the end of july and we're asking you to support the junior u.s olympic team the junior u.s olympic team of course i have some family i'm a member of my family who is um who is actually a top juniors 400 meter hurdler will be running in the in this year's olympic and we are invited and, and i and what and the the team have come together the olympics the american olympics team the juniors olympic team they have come together and they have started a gofundme page and i'm inviting you guys to donate to that and you can go to facebook you can go on my facebook ronaldo c mckenzie or ronaldo.mckenzie that is on facebook or you can go on my twitter ronaldo mckenzie and you might see me pin that to my i'm i'm, I'm actually promoting this particular event i am not the organizer of the event the event is organized sorry of the gofundme page it's organized Sh shana grub is the organizer and she and this is what she has said she said hi this fundraiser was created to raise money to assist our track and field athletes travel to north carolina for aau junior olympics our young athletes have been working hard all year to compete on this national stage and we would like to alleviate some of the burdens associated with traveling for this competition we are asking for support from our family friends and members of the community sincerely metro eagles soaring high in southeast queens and so we are asking you to donate so far they have raised about three thousand and forty five dollars and their goal is six thousand dollars forty three donors so we are asking you to continue to we are asking you to support this venture and if you go to the nearlyboard.com or mckenzie.com sometime later or tomorrow you might see me talking and promoting this particular this particular event this is the neoliberal round podcast we'll be right back after these messages and when we come back we will continue with part two of the series looking at the roe versus wade conversations welcome back to the episode uh now coming up on this episode as we be, as we this is part two looking at the overturning of roe and of course the is the as i sp spoke with um in this episode we will have uh i will I'll, i will present an introduction or of some arguments and then following that you'll hear mr john anthony castro who will respond to those comments after mr castro respond to those comments and um and we'll also talk about the whole issue of roe overturning of roe we will then um have uh dr dr nolan fontaine will join us on the show and will we will have the conversation together looking at mr castro's comments and commenting on that as well and then after that miss we will play another audio commentary 
of Mr. Castro, who, of course, he submitted two responses to some questions that we had asked concerning the overturning of Roe, because we wanted to get his comments. And he also commented on the, um, he also commented on the January 6th hearings, since that is very important as it relates to his campaign and the, the way that he is taking his campaign on this particular challenge of Mr. Trump. And so, um, so, so following the, the next, following this there, so this is broken up in several segments. First, you will have, um, I will present, I will present a 17 minutes, um, introduction to some general conversations. Then you'll have Mr. Castro who will, um, will, who will respond to some of the comments and will also make some, make some comment, uh, make some points as it relates to, um, over the overturning of Roe. Then, of course, you will, Dr. Nolan Fontaine will join us, join, join the program, and we will talk, discuss this overturning of Roe and some other issues. Then you will have Mr. Castro, who will, who will also, will come back and talk about, uh, talk about the, the January 6th hearings. And then we will, and then Dr. Fontaine and myself will follow up with conversations. And then we will have final thoughts and conclude the episode. So sit back, relax. Um, this is a very full and um, powerful episode with lots of information to consider. We'll be right back after this. As we think about the issue of Roe versus Wade, I had presented arguments as it relates to the issue of ethics where there are those who people who are pro-choice are making it making the argument that it is the woman's right to choose what to do with her own body yet it is not anyone's right to commit suicide because that is illegal and that deals with the issue of life because as a society as a people we are the the ethical thing or the moral, what I, when we think about right and wrong and ethics and what is ethical and what is unethical, what is moral, what is amoral or immoral, we are, when we think about the issue of life, we will all agree that life is sacred. As a society, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a, a very important argument here that one must contend with. And this is the argument here is those who are pro-choice make the argument that women must have the right to do with their own bodies what they want to do with their own bodies. But people are free, but people aren't totally free to do anything that they want to do. They can pick up a gun and kill somebody. Okay, and it is illegal to commit suicide. Um... So 
and then of course you can do anything that you want to do but when it has to do with life that that's a completely different issue and we're not thinking about it in those ways but that is the argument and of course there's the issue of economics and then there's the issue where one life threatens another life the fetus or the child's life the pregnancy might creep that you know but and i say to you we cannot and there are people who would argue that what about in the issue of rape and then there are people who would argue what about my what if it's at, at, right now in brazil there is an issue there's a um a major situation in brazil right now where a a, a judge has ordered a 10 year old child who is pregnant and wants to abort the child the fetus she was raped and from that rape she became pregnant and people are outraged because she wants to abort but there is a judge that has ordered a stay of the pregnancy and you might say what about that but i'm saying to you we cannot make a general rule a general right because you when you when you raise those instances they they are instances but we are making a generalization by giving the right to someone to determine what to do with life and i say to you and I, i've already said to you our approach to life we have con- we have a convenient way of defining things in order to come to conclusions so we define the fetus as nothing so that we can move towards justifying ending the fetus through abortion i mean that's and and there are those who say fetus is part of a life i have argued that the fetus is part of life a vulnerable life that must be protected and although it is being incubated within the womb that okay part of the man is inside of the the woman and he should have a right as well and that is the and that his and the thing is we cannot argue or fight with life that is there are some things we cannot fight with the way in which the, the order of things is that women are made in such a way that they help to incubate a fetus towards personhood and that is life that's part of life and the woman cannot have that right unfortunately which is kind of which is a controversial point but it is something to be considered it's a point to be considered when you think about it but as i said to you i'm move i so, so I'm saying to you, there are instances you can you can bring up as to why a woman might want to abort a child. And we have statistics and we have the data here that we will share with you in a minute. But uh, there are instances why a woman would want to abort a child. But I say to you, it should not just be the woman's prerogative, the woman's prerogative. If the man is part of the whole process and is there with the woman or wants to continue with the child and look after the child and so on. So therefore, you know, so therefore, so I say to you, we cannot make a general rule. 
based on inst- certain instances. You're talking about some people are poor, but not everybody people are poor who wants to commit abortion. But so, so because some people are poor and may not be able to raise a child, we, they, we should have we should we should create a, a general law, a general right, a general rule that says abortion is. Is is is, uh, is a is a, is a constitutional right, and then of course I've said I've said that there's a, there's another issue there's a clash here. You, the, the the Constitution says that talks about the issue of the right to life, and the right to life, and we have laws to preserve life. Everyone has that right to life, to pursuit of happiness. But then, what if that... But then, you have another constitutional right that says... It is okay to abort a child. A, sorry, to abort a life. In a, sense, you, it's, in a sense, it creates a clash, an ambivalence, where in one part of the constitution, you're, you are preserving life, you are promoting life. And you are protect you're protecting life, and in another part of the constitution you're ending life. That's in a sense creates some kind of ambivalence. So I am saying so this the, the general rule, creating a general rule, a general right from instances. And you know, we have always talked about instance instances cannot be a reason for generalizing because the instance isn't you cannot create an instance for because now people can utilize that instant so so but today today we're not look today we want to move beyond those arguments to consider other issues and um and and to consider some data for you and if you if you know the uh and i'm going to present to you the we're going to uh, abortion and women of color by Susan A. Cohen in gutmarker.org and I'm looking at the GPR, the Gutmarker Institute and they did some research and, and, and shared some studies and they say according to, the, according to um, the study, the data it says that behind the numbers abortion rates have been declining in the United States for a quarter of a century from a high of 29.3 per 1,000 women aged 15 to 44 in 1981 to an historic low post Roe versus Wade of 19.4 in 2005. The overall number of abortions has been falling too, dropping to 1.2 million in 2005. Now this, this part is very important because we're gonna look at, the, we're gonna look at demographics and we're gonna to speak to the issue of proportionality and when we talk about proportion, it's very important. When we talk about when you're looking at when you look at a study, you also want to look at proportional relationships. And or you you uh, and what is important because we because because the American culture promotes categories and put peoples in in races and so on. That I guess that is important so as to maintain a particular status quo. But when we look at proportional relationships, proportional relationships are relationships between two variables where their ratios are equivalent. 
Another way to think about them is that in a proportional relationship, one variable is always a constant value times the other. Now, I bring up the the point of proportional proportionality or proportional relationships because it is important when you start to look at the data and looking at behind the numbers. According to Susan Cohen in Gutmarker or in the Gutmarker Institute Policy Review, currently, uh, uh, currently, currently, about one third of all abortions are obtained by white women and 37% are obtained by black women. Latinas comprise a smaller proportion, a smaller proportion of the number of the women who have abortions and the rest are obtained by Asians, Pacific Islanders, Native Americans and women of mixed race. So what is important here is that white women currently white women about one third of all abortions are obtained by white women one third and then there and then 30 percent by black women and then the rest are uh, compromised by smaller proportions latinas and others but but if i were to if i were to tell you if when you go deeper in the numbers, according to the report here, the report goes on to say that the abortion rates among women in minority communities have followed the overall downward trend over the three decades of legal abortions. At the same time, however, black women consistently have had the highest abortion rates. We're talking about proportionality proportionate to the rates abortion rates among white women and we're talking about rates we're talking about not per 1000 of the population knowing that when you compare black women as against white women white women, the population of white women far outseeds that of because they are the majority that of the of black women so the rates so while it is that white women have more abortions overall one third when in terms of when you look at it in terms of proportionate to their demographics the number of black people as against the number of white people as against the number of asians per 1000 of births so you, when you go deeper now, or you say black African Americans, actually, abortion rates are highest among that that group, followed by Hispanic women. And um, and this was actually from a study that had begun in two two thousand and four up to two thousand and eight. But of course, the studies today, the data shows. That of course that 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 trend that trend continue, but that white women the rates have increased significantly, and also as um, Schulman, Ronkus, and Bicalvillus Inc. had also conducted a study which had started in about two thousand and nine, looking at the population of the U.S. the demographics and 
what is going to happen by between 2020 and 2025 the population the majority will be, be part of the minority the minority will be part of the majority and of course white people aren't having as many kids probably they're having two and of course and then of course the number of abortion rates are highest coupled with that so that speaks to a demographical change and of course i have said that there are issues with immigration of course immigration some immigration policies at some periods depending on probably the party or who is in power but depending on but the immigration policy also sometimes speaks to demographics this also speaks to the issue of population control okay we talk about look at what's happening in china china had this one child rule now they have abandoned that as their population depletes as they need to as they need more people in their army that this is a very important conversation that i'm having and for us to understand when we look at the whole issue of population the whole issue of strategy the whole issue of control the whole issue of preserving the status quo so of course it is important and we hear of this issue of replacement theory this 18 year old that is entranced by the um, that is entranced by the this that is entranced by the what's the name of the group entranced by the uh by the white extremist group and the, and their uh, replacement ideology killed 10 african americans at the supermarket of course still driving on this replacement ideology and of course um and we're hearing this more and more each day so when we we look at so so that is a concern so it says srbi and i was part of us i was i was also interviewing people part of that study looking at looking at um looking at this idea that looking at how the population will now change and so when you look at this whole abortion issue i'm moving beyond I'm moving beyond I'm moving beyond just looking at it in terms of a rights issue but also looking at the issue of population control or looking at the issue of demographics looking at what's going on in our country looking at what's the 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 the, the study which suggests that between 20 to 2025 and what's happening with population and birth rates and death rates and so on and so forth and what has happened with covid you know so the issue of and you know millions of people have died to covid millions of people have died to various diseases and so on so these things are part of the conversation that we have to consider So I wanted to get into the overturning of the Roe v. Wade decision um, and kind of state my opinion on that um, because it's really important because what the Supreme Court did was obviously contrary to liberal political um, and uh, you know judicial philosophy as well as actually contrary to conservative 
political and even judicial philosophy. As Chief Justice John Roberts, a conservative constitutional scholar, uh, very adamantly made clear uh, in his opinion. So it, it's really important to give some background on, on Roe v. Wade because a lot of people that, you know, of course, they, they say, you know, hey, I support the right to choose, um, but they don't fully understand all of the history um, of the Supreme Court's decisions uh, on these matters. So, of course, it started with Roe v. Wade established a constitutional right to abortion under the 14th Amendment. Um, but what happened in all the cases subsequent to that uh, is what a lot of people don't have a solid grasp on. Um, everybody had pretty much agreed that, uh, you know, because the first set of questions kind of focused on, uh, you know, the, the, the trimester approach, you know, like first trimester was okay, third trimester, not so much. And so the, the question really came about the second trimester, kind of like where, where to draw the line. And that was a lot of the, the case law that was developing. Um, then the courts started getting into the question of viability. So when can the uh, fetus baby kind of like live outside of the womb on its own? And so that's what they started focusing in on next. Um, and then they started gravitating more towards actual science, as, as I like to put it. <laughs> um, and to me, it has nothing to do with the, the right to choose or the right to life. It, it has to do with having a very clear medical and scientific standard of when do we stop calling this a fetus and when do we start calling it a baby? At what point do we deem it to be alive to have constitutional rights and legal protections. You know, the most extreme view would be not until it's out of the womb, right? You know, that's the most extreme view um, because that's where, you know, they would do those uh, partial birth, late-term abortions, which were just obscene. And even uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was against that, you know? She, she did not agree with that. Um, and so, you know, they even passed the, uh, in Congress, they passed the federal late-term abortion ban and so um, it, it was very clear that that was, that was the extreme view. But the question, like I said, became focused really on the second trimester. After the third month, when you get to the fourth month, which is technically, um, you know, after 12 weeks, you're, you're outside of the three months. And so, um, so that's kind of where, where the big focus was. Where my focus was personally was, because you know, we have to have the standard, right? And, and it's, it's an awkward discussion to have, but you, you have to be able to say, okay, let me start by saying this. It's easy to define death. We used to define death by saying there's no heartbeat. But then what we ended up finding out with you know, medicine and science is we could keep the heartbeat artificially pumping. We could keep the lungs uh, artificially going because there was brain activity, right? You know, um, so the person was technically still alive. In fact, we can actually replace the human heart, right, with a machine now that does that function. And so somebody could literally be heartless um, and they could still be deemed alive, even though there's no actual heartbeat. But uh, that's how, that's actually for like hundreds of years, we defined death as, oh, there's no heartbeat, that's it, the person's dead. And then we realized like, well, no, it, it's also brain activity. And so if there's no brain activity, then we can deem the person dead. But then people started saying, well, no, because the heart is still beating, the lungs are still breathing, the person's just, you know, what they used to say is, is like in like a vegetable state, you know? Uh, but the heartbeat was still going, so we deemed that person to still be alive. 
and they wouldn't pull the plug unless you know there was a court order. And so what we ended up realizing and coming to terms with is that it's actually both. Death is defined as the lack of a heartbeat and lack of brain activity. So if that's how we define death, why is that not how we define life? If there's brain activity and if there's a heartbeat, those two combined, the person is alive for all legal purposes and has legal protections and legal rights. And sure enough, that's where constitutional, uh, conservative constitutional scholars started going towards. And that's why some states started passing the heartbeat laws, right, at 15 weeks, which is technically about like three and a half months, getting close to the fourth month because 16 weeks is four months. And it was still in that second trimester. You know, it was after week 12, which is technically in the second trimester. And so that was kind of where all the focus was going um, with these heartbeat laws. Um, again, I wanted it to focus more on science. So again, we don't define death by lack of a heartbeat, so we can't define life by a heartbeat. Uh, it needs a heartbeat plus brain activity. And so what we needed is a lot more studies into that, like at what point um, you know, can the, can the fetus, can the growing baby feel pain? And once you've established that and you've established a heartbeat, then you have a life, and then at that point there's legal protections. And it has nothing to do with religious philosophy or anything like that. This is pure science. We have to have a science. We have to draw that line somewhere. And like I said, we, we all agree that even if the child is still in the womb, you know, like nine months, um, you know, at that point, everybody, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg agrees like, OK, yeah, there, there's some constitutional rights that that baby has. Um, but we could just never come to a solid agreement on a time frame. And I think with a lot of the conservative justices, it's because they were just heavily influenced by their own religious upbringings and religious beliefs, you know, that they always they always use the mask and just call that morals. Um, I scrap all that stuff aside. And like I said, I took a very scientific-based approach to this, and I just said, look, we have to draw the line somewhere, and we need consistent definitions of life and death, and the heartbeat and the brain activity is solid. And if that's at 15 weeks, then it's at 15 weeks, and we got to come to an agreement on that. And that's actually what Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, conservative constitutional scholar, wanted. He wanted the courts to uphold the Mississippi law, which would have been, of course, the most extreme in the whole entire country at 15 weeks. You know, and if it had gone to court and and people had you know litigated it, it would have rested to me heavily on the science. If the science was there and the science could prove there's brain activity at 15 weeks and there's a heartbeat at 15 weeks, then by scientific definition, there's life. And if there's life, then there's legal protections involved. So that's that was where the court was going. By abrogating Roe v. Wade, they undid 50 years of progress in, in defining this, and they kicked it back to the states. And what I don't even think they fully realized yet is they made it very clear that the federal government should have no say-so in this whatsoever. It was wrong from the, from the get-go. States have total say-so. So technically, that means that the federal late-term abortion ban is also overruled. So congratulations, conservative Supreme Court. You just reintroduced late-term abortions again. So states could go as far now as saying, okay, cool. The federal late-term abortion ban is not valid. We're going to go ahead and reinstitute that. And how in the world is that pro-life? That, that doesn't make any sense. And so what it does is it just creates inconsistency among all 50 states and it does affect interstate commerce because people are now going to decide. Because like I'm in Texas, there's a lot of people from California moving here. And 
it's like that scene from the movie Anchorman when he jumps into the into the bear pit and all of a sudden he's just like, I immediately regret this decision. That's exactly what a, cal- a lot of Californians are feeling right now in Texas. So, you know, it was it was a bad decision. It's going to affect the way people move around and even where companies decide to to set up shop. Um, and, and especially with some of the states, you know, pushing these these extreme uh, positions on um, on abortion. So, you know, it's it, it, to me, again, it's I take a very science based approach. Um, I I think, well, I mean, again, I haven't looked at the science behind it. I don't know if uh, Mississippi or Alabama, I can't remember which state it was. I think it was Mississippi. Um, I can't recall all the science that they had produced. I know that, of course, it was called the heartbeat law for a reason because it was, uh, you know, overemphasized the heartbeat. But like I said, it, to me, it's like, well, that's not how we define death. So that would be improper. You'd have to demonstrate brain activity as well, which may be 17 weeks or 18 weeks. But that was what 50 years of development was focusing in on is finally coming to an agreement on where to draw that line so we can finally know and also women could know um, pretty much what to do and and you know how much time they have to make that decision before this fetus grows into a baby and um and and it it seems awkward to have this discussion of course you know because this impacts so many people's lives but unfortunately this is just what the law is you know we you have to create these rules um and i prefer rules that are based on logic and science not uh you know, superstition and, and, and morals or, or whatever they want to call it. Um, and, and I felt like, again, we were headed there, but I, re- I really feel like this did a, a big disservice. And I've had to explain to a lot of people in the pro-life movement, this was not a pro-life decision. They kicked it back to the states, and you're going to have states, again, reinstitute the late-term abortion ban, or I'm sorry, late-term abortions, um, because the ban is now effectively unconstitutional. And uh, and it's, it's, it's extremely nonsensical. Um but it also shows just how far right the court has shifted. It's it's shifted so far right that I mean because you know there's people that are center right, and a lot of their you know positions are are based on you know soundly on logic and data and and science. Um, but the further you go to the right, the more nonsensical it gets. And sometimes they'll do things that they claim are pro life, and it's actually contrary. And so, or they'll say that this is conservative political philosophy and it's anything but, you know, as Chief Justice John Roberts made very, very clear. He was trying to get a hold of the conservatives and basically say, guys, we don't need to go this far. We can we can uphold the Mississippi law. It'll set 15 weeks, you know, and then the whole debate after that will become science. And, you know, maybe we might have to revisit it and up it by two weeks or something like that. But um, but he was basically trying to plead with them not to go this extreme and and they went there so you know again it's it's this coupled with all the other supreme court's decisions that are uh, really just making it clear that they are going to completely change the landscape of the united states and they are totally willing and ready to strip us of our constitutional rights they already watered down the miranda rights which is kind of scary you know are they preparing for mass arrests i mean I don't like getting into hysteria, but you have to start wondering what is up with all these decisions. And now they're taking in the decision as well, which might legitimize uh, an election law legal theory called the independent state legislature theory, where you know the legislature is basically the the, the one all be all source of election law. 
with no oversight whatsoever. And that is literally what Trump's lawyers were pushing, these fringe legal theories with no support whatsoever. And, uh, and even within the election law community, they viewed this as like an absurd interpretation of the Constitution. And yet they are, they are doing this. They're watering down our, uh, the rights that we have once we're arrested. They're, getting, they're, st they're setting the stage for a coup in 2024. There's no other way to interpret this. And I think a lot of people have their head in the sand. And again, it's, it's, it's extremely unfortunate. Uh, but there's a lot more that I can go into. But I'll leave my opinion at that, uh, where I just think that this was uh, completely unnecessary. And, um, and yeah, we're just going to have to see how things, where things go from here. You're listening to John Castro, who had actually submitted an audio a comments on some questions I had asked, and he submitted this this response. And uh, and of course, he's talking about January 6th. And we have with us Nolan Fontaine, who's joining us right now in the studios. What's up, Nolan? Dr. Fontaine. How are you? I am doing well, well. Yeah, just want to say hello, greetings uh, to all the listeners and um from here and around the world yes and there's a lot happening with with the january 6th and we appreciate mr castro for commenting and helping to um dissect what's going on um any any comments you have any comments on what you have to say absolutely um i think uh mr castro has a very like unique perspective and yes. view um in terms of how he sees the world and how he sees things that happen on in the district colonies yeah. that's what i call dc because we know it's not a state right right um i i do have some um reflections and yeah. insight um just from what i have seen thus far with the january 6 hearing um i'm very baffled mm. um that the original slate of republicans um, that were submitted to Speaker Pelosi was rejected and that all, the only two Republicans on the committee, yes. uh, Representative Liz Cheney and Representative Adam Kinsler, yeah. uh, they're the only Republicans on that committee. Right. Um, it, it troubles me that Liz Cheney is censured in um, the Wyoming House yes. right now. Um, it, it also troubles me as an independent voter that yes. there are no independent voters um, that make up that committee. Um, I know we lost Justin that, Amash. You uh -huh, know, that is troubling, yes. Um, and yeah, that, I, I think that that's just very telling of the yeah. moment, um, especially in the moment, you know, post Nina Turner and everything, yeah, where, yeah. you know, Nina Turner didn't win her right. primary again right. and That's she true. didn't get any support from the squad that is true that is um, true um so you know it, it's a very telling historical moment right um one thing that uh mr castro brought up in regards to um president trump is you know the notion that he doesn't need clinton voters right um one thing that um, was very striking to me uh, right before the 2020 election is that, you know, as an independent voter, I follow the Green Party and Libertarian parties very yes, closely. Yes. 
And, you know, it was revealed by Dr. Jill Stein, uh, who did, you know, she, her, her money wasn't as long as President Trump's, but <laughs> she was able to do a state recount uh-huh. in yeah, Wisconsin. Yeah. And, you know, it ended up finding out that at the time, you know, right before the election, 2020 election, Secretary Clinton, once they got, you know, the real numbers, Secretary Clinton actually got less numbers um, than actually, you know, indicated. So, you know, as an independent voter, having that frame of reference and then also having the frame of reference when Dr. Cynthia McKinney was um, primary and redistricted in her uh, Georgia House of Representatives state election and how she lost um, because of Diebold, which is now uh, Smartmatic, which is now Dominion Voting System. Yes, yes. Independent voters have known for a very, very, very long time that there have been, at minimum, irregularities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I heard Mr. Castro say that, you know, President Trump, you know, doesn't doesn't have, wasn't able to garner any Clinton voters. I have not seen those numbers, and I would probably agree that he doesn't need Clinton voters because yeah. one thing that he has gained is mm-hmm. a lot of Bernie voters. Okay. I think a lot okay. of folks yes, yes, yes. have have noticed, mm-hmm. borrowing from you know yes. Mr. Glenn Ford, You're rest right. in peace. Um, he was the editor of Black Agenda Report. He's always stood by since 2015 that Bernie Senator Bernie Sanders has been the sheepdog candidate yeah. for the DNC. Yeah. And after the last election cycle where I saw that Senator Sanders actually signed a memorandum mm-hmm. of understanding, yes. Yes. you know, pledging allegiance to the Democratic National Convention, even though he is an independent senator. Right, right, right. right. You know, I, I think that second time around it really burned a lot of bernie voters and the common denominator between that i have noticed in terms of patterns from a political sociology perspective between bernie voters and trump voters is the class perspective and that is one thing that a lot of times secretary clinton doesn't really tease out Mm. so i would i would you know kind of you know I would assert that President Trump doesn't need Clinton voters because right. he's got residual Bernie voters and right, he's got right, residual right, right. independent voters as well. Yes, because yes, yes. as it, at this point in time, we haven't heard anything from the Libertarian Party. Yeah, we haven't been hearing much from them. Actually. We haven't heard anything from the Green Party just yet. Yes. We haven't heard anything from Kanye West yet if he's <laughs> going to run, right? <laughs> Well, you know, yes, so, yes, yes, so right. th- th- this is a brain bank of voters mm-hmm. that mainstream media, yes. you know, usually does not include into, you know, the everyday equation. And, you know, um, I'm, I, I wrote an article, actually, and I published an article. It's going to be part of my next book as well. I'm going to read it. You're talking about, um, I, I entitled it Conspiracy Theory, but I have a way with words. I use words very strategically. So it's not really conspiracy theory, but in a sense, if you read, um, I talked about how people voted in some households. Right. And, and, and if you listen to the podcast, you'll hear what we, the finding was, you know, because the home was private, a lot of people, a lot of private things happened in the home where the woman 
who was driven by the Me Too movement also controlled the voting in the home and ensured that she voted for her and her sons who don't usually vote and they were saying the disproportionate was there was a disproportionate number of how is it that all these people voted but our figures suggest that they didn't vote you know it's mm-hmm. quite alarming the disparity come from what happened in the household and you can't detect what's going on in the household so i think that's why the um the republicans were so uh, so forceful in terms of trying to change the law and ensuring that the law is, prevents something like that i don't know but that's so that's why they are they are asserting that there are irregularities some people are mm-hmm. asserting it because because you but you can't really tell you can't prove it it's difficult to prove <laughs> i mean you there, know? there there has been yeah. And that's one thing that uh, another thing that you know really piqued my interest and um in terms of january 6th and the election irregularities or at this point election fraud yeah yeah um as they are calling it in certain states like arizona yeah um or wisconsin right Mm -hmm. um and you have specific candidates like the candidate for governor in arizona yeah uh-huh. Carrie Lee. That's true. That's true. She she is specifically calling it out as as it is with yes. election fraud. Yeah. And that being the driving force of what led to that mass mobilization, which you know, on yes, yes. trending topics on Twitter at first was calling it the Million MAGA March, right? And, <laughs> right, and, right. And now it's turned into January sixth. Right. It's turned yes. into this whole. ABC production to where you know the January 6th committee has actually hired someone from ABC yeah. the the news corporation to produce this six or seven part series regarding January 6th and I'm very baffled why you know Speaker Pelosi didn't entertain any of Kevin McCarthy's picks like representative jim right, jordan right, right, right. from ohio mm, mm. blue dog republican <laughs> interesting um, yeah interesting. and it's just like wow like you but know. yeah but on another front this young man running for president is taking a step forward by um i uh, earlier in the episode before you were here um yes i had a breaking news and i did receive a some uh, a story from mr mr castro who is on January 20 and Ju- July 25th, he will be in D.C. and he will be filing uh, a, a complaint against the Federal Election Commission in okay. federal court um, saying that um, they cannot huge. allow a, a candidate to run Donald Trump because he's ineligible. That's huge. That is huge and he will have a co- press conference following that filing. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be following the story, but I just I so uh, so that's happening on that front. Um, and he actually just commented on some of this, and he also made other comments. But we'll be right back after these messages. We have Dr. Nolan Fontaine helping us as well to decipher some of this. What's going on? Roe versus Wade, and there's also the January six hearings. That's big, and of course there's issues of gun reform, but we may not have time to cover that. This is the Neoliberal Round podcast. We'll be right back. People are getting really impatient with Merrick Garland and the DOJ. They seem to be coming off as very spineless. And the fact that they're also leeching off of the a lot of the evidence that's acquired by the January 6th committee has a lot of people wondering, like, 
what the hell have you guys been doing? Have you not been investigating any of this? How is it that you know the January 6th committee has put together all these depositions and questioned all these people? Like we just presumed that's exactly what DOJ was doing, but apparently they weren't and they haven't been. And it's now only as a result of these very public hearings that now DOJ feels compelled to take action. Um, and you know they finally started going state to state and to a lot of these GOP heads and seizing their phones to get the data about the whole you know uh, electoral uh, college scam that they were trying to pull on the American people. And so again, it's 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 very frustrating because I, we're we're just really confused as to like what the thought process on Merrick Garland is. We know that he's an institutionalist, and so he's going to try to do everything that he can to preserve the institutions. And what my personal thought is, is that he just does not want to charge a former president. It makes us look like a banana republic, um, and it, it sets a really bad precedent, you know, of, of uh, indicting and trying to prosecute a former president. Plus, if you indict Trump, even if you put him on trial, there's going to be somebody on the jury that voted for him, right? You know, it was a very contentious election, 50-50. Uh, There's no way that you could get, you know, 12 neutral people that wouldn't be biased in favor of the president. And so I think his fear is, look, guys, like if we indict Trump and we take him to court and we can't lock in a conviction because of his popularity, think about the damage that that's going to do in the future and how much that's going to embolden Trump to now know that no jury could ever convict him because he's too damn popular. And then he's going to be emboldened to do whatever the hell he wants versus right now he's a little bit scared. Um, and so I think that what they're doing is employing a, a strategy of pretty much like strategic inaction. Like let's not do anything and that way Trump knows he's on eggshells. Um, but what they don't know about Trump's personality is the inaction is actually emboldening him even more. It's making him even more confident that they're never going to do anything and that he is above the law. And I think that's the bigger danger that Merrick Garland is not putting into his calculation. Like I said, I, I understand. Um, and, and I should say that when I said that, you know, there's confusion in, in the legal community, it's everybody else. <laughs> I, I, I understand Merrick Garland's position on this. Like I said, he's an institutionalist. He doesn't want to set a bad precedent as far as, you know, indicting a former president. And then also the likelihood of conviction is practically zero. And so he's scared that uh, taking a swing and missing is actually going to, again, embolden Trump even more. But my response to that is not doing anything is going to embolden him more than anything. Um, and it's not protecting us from the very real, clear and present danger and threat that he poses to our constitutional republic. He has it out to destroy the republic that elected a black president that humiliated him at the White House Correspondent Dinner. That's what this is all about. It was all about his pride being destroyed that day and him coming back to teach everybody a lesson. And I really believe he has every intention of destroying this republic. And unfortunately, you know, we we laid the foundation for it, you know, not keeping, you know, uh, endless amounts of dark money out of politics. And um, I mean, it's, it's just bad, but we'll have to see how everything goes. But my only hope is that when the Supreme Court is afforded the chance to hear the merits of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applying against Trump, that they'll do the right thing 
and that they'll vote to kick him off the ballot. And if anything, they do it because Murdoch and the Koch brothers want this, right? And and a lot of the the more institutional uh, uh, GOP conservative base, you know, the old guard, are, want to get rid of Trump, right? Because they want DeSantis. So we're hoping that that, at the very least, because again, I don't the the I I I'm you know I'm center right, but you know I'm not that far right. You know these nut jobs obviously scare me, and I know that DeSantis is pretty far right, but at least he's not unhinged. At least he's not likely medically insane and out to destroy our republic. You know, of course, I have a lot of you know things that I'll likely disagree with politically with DeSantis, um, but again, it's he doesn't pose the type of existential threat that I believe Trump poses to our republic. And so my hope is that what the January 6th committee has done is really laid all the factual foundation to prove that Trump was involved. He partook, organized, and orchestrated, and executed an insurrection in attempt to stage a seemingly lawful coup under the guise of false pretenses about, you know, a, a fake uh, electoral scam and that, you know, uh, the election was rigged, which everybody knows is BS. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to see how it goes, but uh, but I don't know. Uh, it, it, with the way the court is going, the Supreme Court, it's not looking good. Some break, uh, welcome back to the Neoliberal Round podcast. There's some um, breaking news coming in regarding um, Donald Trump and his 2020 presidential run or candidacy. I think um, we still have Dr. Nolan Fontaine here with us. And he was telling us um, just now, updating us, that uh, on January, on July 4th, Independence Day, <laughs> Donald Trump may decide or will announce whether or not he will run in the 2024 presidential candidate. Wait. I mean, in the 2024 Wait. presidential Race? Yes, we are seeing some some sources, uh, a, a source so far that uh, he he may be declaring on uh, Independence Day. Okay. Uh, so you know, I specifically from a social sociological <laughs> perspective, I'm trying to identify particular patterns that you know may give us particular signs that point to that. You know, it's. And it's you, one thing to go, yes. you know, on yes. certain sources or well, a source. I, you know, I, I, agree. <laughs> I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I know what you're going to say, of course. Yeah, but yeah. That, it, it's, it's very telling, that, um, and it would be very Trump-like if he did do that. Okay, um, yes, that the, if he runs. Or if he announces on, on July, July 1st, 4th, given... Yeah. Uh, July fourth. Res- I'm yeah. sorry, July fourth. Yeah. I'm thinking Canada. Day. That's cool. <laughs> yes. Yeah, on July fourth, yes. uh, because of the current underpinning, yeah. that current you know movement of America first. Yeah, and what that means, you know, Independence Day, America Great Again. I mean, he is going to announce that he is running. I mean, I'm t- there's no doubt about it. It'll definitely be interesting um, mirroring what. You know our current executive and the White House. Yes, yes, yes. May you know what their narrative may be on Independence Day. So it'll be interesting seeing how both sides kind of yes. posit towards that, right? That is true. That is true. 
That's true. And you said there was more breaking news coming in. Or uh, more in- I, or news alert. Yeah, I, I also am seeing, seeing um, trending news on Twitter that uh, Trump may be exploring a possibility of running with Ron DeSantis in 2024. Oh, wow, wow. Okay, oh, wow. Um, this is interesting. As I said, that's that's just oh. something that's trending right now on Twitter. Wait, it's, wait, it's hold only up. One source that I've seen thus far. I mean, it if that happens, it would really make the conversation. It would change the game it, and what we've been seeing because it would. I think we've been hearing that they um, that the Republican Party is now running behind, rallying behind DeSantis, th- in thinking that Donald Trump is imploding because right. of the January sixth. But now we are hearing Donald Trump is about to announce his candidacy on, July, on a very significant and important day. Yeah. And not only that, but he there is news, rumors somewhere there that he might trending be, news was trending one news. current uh, source that yes. we confirmed that he he may consider Ron DeSantis. Yes. Republican governor of Florida. Oh wow! Um, for, wow. For me, looking at it. From a political sociological perspective, mm-hmm. that would leave uh, a question mark over who would be the governor of Florida, right? I, I, Lieutenant I think, governor, probably. Is there an election this year? I'm, I don't think. So. I mean, I, I don't I think, know, I and, don't, I, and I'm, I'm not, sure. I've not read Florida's yeah. state constitution. Right. Yeah. You know, I don't know if that would automatically right, right, spur right. a special election, or as you said, if the lieutenant governor right, would. Yeah, probably. Well, yes, sir. Maybe for two years. But is the lieutenant governor a Democrat, though? I'm not sure. Because you know, sometimes you have the lieutenant governor, the Democrat, and the and the um and the governor is a Republican in some cases. Mm-hmm. And I think that happened some time before, and when the, you know, that I'm not familiar with that case, yes. but I, I've, I've heard, you know, on the federal level that yeah. happened, you know, specifically right, right. with, you know, Abraham Lincoln and Andrew uh, Jackson, you yes, know. Yes, yes. So, uh, I think it'll be interesting within the next few days, uh, especially on Independence Day. I, I think uh-huh. it'll be interesting as well with the different. Uh, gubernatorial races Uh, as I was saying I've got my eye on Arizona I've also been looking at uh, Wisconsin's uh, House of Representative race Uh, Liz Cheney will be will be also primary uh, this go around so it'll be interesting seeing uh, do you think she had chance she has a chance of winning, I mean, because I mean, monetarily, absolutely, she's but, a shitty. Yeah. And, and well, yes, that's true. But um, with what's happening with how they they have they have in a sense attacked her, her own party, in a sense, trying to silence it. I mean, this chain, do you think she will? Um, <laughs> silence is a strong um, word. Censure her, whatever the case might be. Yes, uh, yeah. I, like I said, I. She's related to Dick Cheney at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, Dick Cheney has been in D.C., on Capitol Hill, on K Street, uh, in the White House. So she she already has the yeah. the master game book in terms of how to run and, um, you know, the, a yeah. good election campaign. And the Bushes probably as well, the Bushes. Probably so. Uh-huh, yes. Uh, so... 
and, and then the other thing that I am wondering about is the American First candidate mm-hmm. out of the Republican wing yeah, that yeah. you know will arise out of Wyoming. Right. Right now, it's looking like Harriet Hagerman. Oh. Who's looking like she's going to rise to the top and the the Trump back, you know, Republican candidate out of Wyoming. Mm. So for me this weekend, it'll be very interesting seeing how both of those, how yes. both Representative Cheney and uh, Ms. Hagerman. Ms. Hagerman, yes. Uh, how they, yeah, wait, 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 they, they when, is, the when is the election? So that is it. November coming. I I think November, it's a right, yeah I think election. it's a it's a midterm election. Okay, okay, fine. And um, all right, okay. The, yo, I mean this. I mean this is quite interesting. We are, we are, we are following all the all of all of us all the news, and this is a very interesting time in America. Is there's so much happening? Um, earlier we I was I don't know I was on earlier I was speaking with you as well, and you said that you, you were carjacked. <laughs> Sorry. Earlier you said you were carjacked. Oh yes, and, and, and I, I did, and I also won. I won the fight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I was, and I said, and earlier, I mean, actually, I was trying to record you earlier, but I didn't get it. I lost it. But um, and I was saying to you that there's some carjacking. Is I didn't realize that people. I mean, my car was stolen in January. I didn't realize that people were still carjacking and I mean it is on the rise and one of the, and I say to you part of the reason what's going on with the, uh, one a police officer said to me some time ago in Philadelphia the reason why they, they you know they're not able to resolve the problem is that they keep releasing these young men they keep releasing as soon as they arrest them and, and turn them over to the district attorney the prosecutor they have to release them because let me tell you why because right now I'm on, I am probably, I am privy to, I am, I, I'm supposed to be making some kind of, okay, my car was stolen. I'm trying not to, to give too much information about the case because the case is still before the courts, okay? But my car was stolen and they caught one of the perpetrators and I have not been, yes, it's good in one sense, but no, I have not been contacted. I have tried to contact the district attorney's office. Have you contacted the Pennsylvania Victim Compensation Hotline? Yes, I did. That's great. And it took me a while, two months almost. And I got, and I then the next thing I know, oh, the, the young lady doesn't work there anymore. This is bureaucracy. Nothing is happening, so you wonder what's going on. I mean, incompetence, no, no follow through. I'm really not happy about this, and I think that's what's going on. That's why the cases are not being resolved because people aren't doing their jobs. It's really disheartening uh, in terms of you know what's going on at the municipal level. And, yeah. You know, I've had conversations with you know folks on the left, uh, some yeah. centrist or moderate folks, and mm-hmm. even some folks on the right. Yeah. And even folks on the very far margin. So. Yes. You know the whatever you want to call them the alt right yeah. or Trump right or <laughs> you know the, yeah the, yes. the hyper left or alt left or onk left whatever you want to call them today yeah. um, and it it seems like that 
one common denominator that folks are worried about even on the municipal level is the infiltration of globalists so you know folks who are backed by folks more on a global scale World Economic Forum Davos Bilderberg Group Mm -hmm. things of that nature some things which folks would you know, say maybe a little bit yeah. um, unsubstantiated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I One thing that I've been noticing in terms of patterns is that, you know, yeah. that is that is one, I don't want to say worry, but it is a concern when you see it happening in not just Philadelphia, but other major cities around America. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, just identifying that that pattern and whether I'm talking to working class, you know, American Indians or mm-hmm. lower middle class, yeah. you know, European Americans or, you know, lower middle class, you know, um, black Americans or African Americans or, you know, Latino Americans, mm-hmm. what yeah. have you. There does seem to be a concern of if folks are, especially with Citizens United, yeah, you know, massive amounts of money, corporations giving campaign funds, right? Yes. If these candidates are really like American, like <laughs> backed candidates, uh-huh. or are they really corporate backed candidates? We know there's a fine line that. You know, some folks have to walk. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I mean, I did an article on, on a podcast, actually, on who rules America. And then I did another follow-up, and I even wrote a paper on that, and I did a follow-up on the neoli- in, the neo- in the neoliberal commentary on the world, the world now has two more global challenges. So I talk about um, William Dumhorst's book on who rules America, who we talked about corporations. But now I say, who rules corporations? And I say, China. <laughs> and then I talk about... I was about to ask you, like, what was the most insightful thing that you kind of like... Yeah, I, I said China because China takes advantage of our brand of economic system. Takes advantage of our capitalism, which is now about nepotism and greed. And so, what, so China studies us and they understand us. So... What they do is that now they have created a thing where people like NBA, mm-hmm. the NBA, absolutely would grovel or acquiesce to to China, mm-hmm. and they have they did they lost billions of dollars. Now they're back with um with China with China. Wow. Okay. You're, you're, and you're talking in regards to the LG. LBJ situation. Yes, yes, yes. And, right. And, and and look, and I think John Cena, there's an issue with John Cena. And yes. I think you heard, I've, um, I've heard. And he, uh, he had to walk back. He sent an apology. And I think we we carried it on the, on the podcast. And also HBO Bill Maher had a show. And we also carried that on the podcast mm-hmm. with Bill Maher talking about mm-hmm. it as well. But... Um, so we said, of course, China, and then, of course, we talk about China and Russia and their strategy, and so on and so forth. Oh, Looking especially at the whole, with BRICS. Yes. 
and we talk about but listen at the whole issue of power as a strategy and so on so we did talk about that but here you are um sharing and giving us an insight about um about corporate america and who who actually guides these politicians how do they make decisions of course we know how i mean we know america we know the i mean the country is built on religious ideology i heard i i mean of course i mean based on the constitution yeah but of course of course there's also this freedom of religion <laughs> and, that, and that there is, is that this, is also a pattern that yes. i've not only seen yeah. in the u.s constitution uh-huh. but multitudes of state constitutions the only exception that yeah. uh and I, i'll shout out my my colleague my fellow genealogist yeah Phoenix Moon, the only constitution that we've come across yes. uh, so far that has something different would be the state of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. We look more so at constitutions from an American Indian perspective. Uh, so it's yes. interesting for us that. Yes, right. Do you have your own constitution? Who? As an, a tribe, as an American Indian tribe, original tribe, those who don't. Win. Would your American Indian tribe have, or is it part of the Constitution? Oh, American Indians are a part of the U.S. Constitution okay. and okay. and some state constitutions, okay. right? Okay. Okay. Um, where where there is acknowledgement, because we know that yeah. the Iroquois Confederation right. was integral in crafting, mm-hmm. you know, the U.S. Constitution. Okay. Okay. So, there's also remnants of Indians okay. in there as well. <laughs> Yes, uh, there are certain tribes, um, certain nations that yeah. do have their individual, you know, respective mm-hmm. uh, bylaws or constitutions as well. Right. And there's one more point that you I wanted to follow up because I followed up. I know you talked about car, we talked about car theft and the rise in car theft and the issue of poverty. We did. You know, poverty is. Is really spiraling out of control, and um, you had commented on that earlier, which I did. I wanted to capture that. Um, what I mean, what do you, th- what do you, and there's been several initiatives. Um, Stop the violence campaign, marching gun reform. Of course, there's you no know, the new um, the safer community, the bipartisan safe, safer communities um, act. Um, so. Do you think any of this will work, or is going to work, or has been working? And what do you see is the real sol- issue or the solution to some of these, the divide, the car theft, and so on? And of course, of course, I said of incompetence from the district attorney level because they're not doing their jobs. Okay, <laughs> but apart from that, what anything else? I think all those are are definitely variable variables yeah. that need to be held. Yeah. I also going back to like an American Indian perspective yeah you know as as I became acquainted with like you know my family my lineage mm-hmm. and like really understood who I was yeah. you know I it also made me wonder like wow like how many other young bulls families have taken the time to sit down and be like yo like do you understand? Yeah. Do you know who your great great grandfather was? Your third great grandfather, your mm-hmm. third great grandmother. 
contribution that they gave to our family, whether they're American Indian or not. Yeah. I, I think it's, one, an identity problem because a lot of times you have young boys and, and sisters, sometimes too, and other folks, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, that don't have a stable you know situation at home yes or don't understand you know their familial identity and everything yeah sometimes that turns into them looking for family through friends uh-huh which is which is great and yeah. sometimes it turns into looking for family in the streets sometimes yes, that's yes, gang yes. life uh-huh which isn't so great yes and yes, yes. You know, I just from that perspective, like the American Indian perspective, yeah. I see that. And then I think you also asked, you know, are those types of programs working? Yeah. I, I think those are very neoliberalist programs, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, at the heart of it, not, you know, not to yeah. say that they're good or right. bad. Or bad. Uh-huh. Uh, that's that's kind of how I couch them, mm-hmm. you know, from. Uh, a socio-political level, right? And at the same time, I I think historically, like, when I talk to old heads about things that existed back in the day, so different YMCAs that existed mm-hmm. in the city and how those were funded. Yeah. Uh, boys and girls clubs. Um, and it really, it really brings me back to a historical moment where I'm like, wow, I'm kind of, I'm kind of stuck because it kind of reminds me of like that 1880s yes. moment in U.S. history uh-huh. that we kind of refer to as the Gilded Age. Right. But then economically, right, you know, we're in a post-war recession, mm-hmm. right, because we're just coming out of Afghanistan. So it kind of reminds me of like that kind of. Roaring Twenties, Calvin Coolidge, yes. you know, post World War One, post Woodrow Wilson, yes. like you know, <laughs> liberal internationalism period. Uh-huh. Yes. It, it kind of seems as though that you know, on a global and national level, we're trying to yes. we're trying to reorient ourselves uh-huh. with liberalism. Uh-huh. Another trending topic that I just saw is like this whole quote unquote liberal world order that's mm. trending yeah. that uh, President Biden or the 46th executive, whatever, you know, we choose to call him. Uh, it that that's a term that's been trending. And we, we know that in the past there has been, you know, a kind of knee jerk reaction behind the world behind the phrase new world order right right so you know that kind of i think that kind of encapsulates you know the conversation from Mm -hmm. like you know a uh a familial uh enter uh a a social yeah a kind of like social organizational level, yeah, a structural uh-huh. level, and a systemic level or a global level, right? Mm-hmm. About kind of, I think these programs, good in some sense, and like, you know, at the heart of them, we need to understand politically that they are neoliberal, 
and we have to identify you know community community municipality to municipality yeah to see uh-huh. if this is a good fit for your respective community and i see i know exactly and i think i knew, i know exactly what you are lo- you are alluding to why you speak how you speak just now mm-hmm. saying looking at the programs and whether or not these programs or ideas are fit for communities i have said that funding they're not reaching the people at the community level and i and i had a discussion recently about that with mr castro as well and several other people it's not reaching and probably that's one of the reasons as you said so it's quite interesting that you would actually make a comment about that and then there we go with rice and then of course what's going on people are now turning to crime and violence and because the programs are not reaching people and are providing a good fit i mean california California. You see what's going on in Cali, bro? With the the relief. Well, how much they're giving? How much money they're giving? Oh, I, I have seen that, and <laughs> I always <laughs> I actually posted. Uh, <laughs> I, I posted a meme about that. It uh-huh. was SpongeBob meme, and it was like this big balloon, and it was like, oh my god, it can't get, and it, it can't possibly get any bigger, and oh, then the balloon it had eight point six percent inflation. Yes, yeah, and then at the bottom it had Patrick, and it was like. Uh-huh. You know, a thousand plus dollar relief checks in California, right. like mm-hmm. oh, just just wait a moment. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So you know, from a state perspective, I'm wondering like how that will affect inflation on on a state level mm-hmm. uh, for California. I'm wondering how that will affect um, gas and excise tax mm-hmm. in California. Uh, California is also in the midst of yes. I think reparations, um, conversations <laughs> with some folks that can prove a genealogical tie to, mm. um, I believe, being either enslaved or indentured servants. So quite progressive, it's a very quite humanitarian. It, it, it's a very interesting yes. time in California. You this know, governor that's something is something that you subscribe to. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very, I was very, uh, I was very shocked to see that's quite yes. the recall last year yeah. for the governor, and also shocked to see that he won. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting to see what's going on out there right now. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think you have. I think we're at a very interesting moment, uh, given where we are in terms of inflation, stagflation, uh, economically on the global level as well, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, even going back to your statement on China and everything. Yes, yes, you know, yes, like yes. They're yes. economic hegemon now. They are, and they have a and they come. They have a market. They have a market now. They are very strategic, you know. But there's so much more that can be said. And um, of course, this is the Neoliberal Round podcast, and we are having a treat with Dr. Nolan Fontaine, who has joined the show today. And um, I'm so happy that he could come on, and he's gonna he's gonna be joining us many um, on several other occasions uh, because we we it's great that he can come and help us dissect some of um, and provide information as to what's going on in America and the world. This is the Neoliberal Round podcast. We'll be right back after this to wrap up.
we have one correction to our previous episode. We had we had mentioned that Clarence D. Thomas was the first African American justice to the Supreme Court. We misspoke. We actually meant Thurgood Marshall, who was nominated by Lyndon B. Johnson on June thirteenth, nineteen sixty seven. But the idea that we wanted to drive home was the idea of the prominence being accorded to an African-American. The prominence or the opportunity to sit on the Supreme Court, a high court, which is not something that is usually accorded to African-Americans. Of course, we have one justice. And so we looked at the reaction at the time. So... We spoke about the reaction of, of this particular news and what, other, what some people were saying at the time. When, it, when the news came out that he had raped this woman, some woman. And so to say now that Joe Biden is, President Joe Biden is somewhat responsible, it's laughable. But uh, thank you for listening to the Neoliberal Round podcast. Join us tomorrow or later in the week for more exciting episodes as we continue to, dis- to explore issues in the news. One of the news that we're going to have to get to is we haven't done a podcast as it relates to what's going on in Ukraine and with Russia. We will have that for you coming up on one of our next podcasts. We have, I meant, I meant we haven't done a podcast um, since the last one we did in season two. So we haven't done a podcast recently on Ukraine, Russia, but we have done several podcasts, several episodes covering the whole um, Ukraine, Russia war. But we will get to that soon. And we are yet to um, do the podcast with Dr. with Professor, my good friend uh, from Holy Cross University, Professor Andre Corrine. And um, so when we have, well, as soon as we get him, we will have that for you. And um, of course, we continue to follow the news as it relates to the January 6 hearings and with what's happening with regarding the overturning of Roe and what some states are doing, some of the immediate Effect, immediate actions have been taken from some states. One, of course, Texas is one of those states that, um, that took immediate actions to ban certain and to restrict certain um, funding and certain any kind of wiggle room around the, law, around the law that allows for people to give them stays, temporary stays, but because some people want the law to be effective immediately. But we will continue to have these discussions. This is part two. We go continue with part three of this series, but we continue to look at other issues in the news, as I said. The Neoliberal Round is brought to you by the Neoliberal Corporation. I am your host and the producer, Ronaldo C. McKenzie, and I'm also the author of the Neoliberal of Neoliberalism, Globalization, Income Inequality, Poverty, and Resistance. If you haven't gotten your book, please, it's available on all platforms worldwide. And also, just so you know,
You can visit us at RonaldoCMcKenzie.com and TheNeoLiberal.com. The Neoliberal is serving the world today to solve tomorrow's challenges. And of course, we are all about making popular what was the monopoly, which is the aim of communication. Donate to us at https colon forward slash forward slash anchor.fm slash the neoliberal slash support and send us a feedback and share the show with your friends. What good?